Every year on this first Sunday in Lent, we, we hear this, this story, Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And today we got a double whammy. Those of you who were watching your bulletin read Luke's version and heard, I think, Matthew's version. Um, and you got to see the ways in which they are slightly different, but very similar. This is, we read somebody's version, and all four Gospels tell some version of this story, uh, every year on this first Sunday of Lent. It is the model temptation story, at least that is how we are often invited to read it. Jesus resists the devil's temptations, and so the thinking goes, we too should work to overcome what our opening call calls the many temptations with which we are each assaulted. And then this season of Lent becomes a kind of an exercise in imitating Jesus, the one who refused to turn stones into bread or to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. If Jesus can resist the devil in the wilderness, the thinking goes, surely the least I can do is give up chocolate for 40 days. So that's the problem, uh, <laughs> setting up a false equivalency between the temptations that we uh, experience in the season of Lent to renege on our chocolate vows and what Jesus is tempted with in the, in the story. Um, and I think that reading this story as a model story for resisting temptation is actually not a very good way to use it. I think if we understand temptation only as an opportunity for self-mastery and self-denial and self-discipline. If, if the season of Lent is meant to be this kind of exercise in split thinking, where our bodies and our lusts and our desires are a problem to be overcome so that we can focus completely on some sort of rarefied spiritual plane of existence, the place where God is, the place where we don't have to worry about all the messy, tricky, dirty stuff in our lives that distracts us from being holy, I think we have missed the point. Because we tend to read this story as if there's a moral to it, as if there's a message in it for us, a spiritual lesson for us. And when we hear it in the season of Lent, that message seems to be something like, pick a thing that tempts you and experiment with giving it up for 40 days, and then at the end of 40 days, you get to start doing it again. <laughs> and I don't think the moral of this story is that Jesus resisted temptation so that we could resist chocolate. I say that because there is actually nothing wrong with chocolate. Um, and there's actually nothing wrong with turning stones into bread, either. That would feed a lot of hungry people. There's nothing inherently evil about the Son of God having the opportunity to control every government in the world. I would love to live in that world. I would love to have Jesus as my president. I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> Who doesn't love that guy? And really, once you think about it, there's nothing inherently sinful in the Son of God having an opportunity to perform a spiritual magic trick. Jesus does this all the time in the Gospels, right? These, these kind of messianic tightrope walks that are purely designed to demonstrate, hey, this guy is different, right? So throwing himself from the pinnacle of the temple so that the angel of God will catch him, even that so-called temptation story is not really about resisting an evil impulse, Every single one of the things that the devil tempts Jesus with are, at heart, holy impulses to do things that Jesus knows can advance his mission in the world. These are the very things, actually, that Jesus will end up doing in slightly modified fashions later on in the gospel story. The devil does not tempt Jesus with bad stuff. The devil tempts Jesus with very good stuff. He tempts Jesus, as the Roman Catholic writer Henri Nouwen says, with the ability to be relevant, 
to meet people exactly where they are, to respond to their immediate needs. That's the stones. The devil tempts Jesus with the ability to be powerful and to use his power to effect great good. And the devil devil tempts Jesus with the ability to be spectacular, to wow and woo people and draw them into his movement. He tempts Jesus with charisma and good looks and supernatural abilities to connect with people. Those are not bad things. In fact, seen one way, those are the very strategic strengths that Jesus is already demonstrating, right? Jesus already has the ability to turn five loaves of bread into enough food for 5,000 people. He has the ability to speak truth to power. Important people, governors and kings, are already starting to pay attention to this guy. And he already has the ability to be charismatic, to work miracles, to draw people to him through force of personality. The devil tempts Jesus to play to his greatest strengths, He offers Jesus his own deepest self, his deepest desires, his calling in the world. The devil tempts Jesus to double down on being Jesus. And Jesus says no. Jesus says no to a lot in this story, a lot more than just his ego needs. He gives up food for 40 days. That's a a tall order, not just the fun foods like chocolate and alcohol. Jesus gives up all food. That's why he's hungry and vulnerable when the devil finds him. He's on something like a vision quest, right? As his tradition understands it, Jesus has gone into the desert as his ancestors have been doing for generations. He's purifying himself in order to hear the word of God. And what Jesus hears is this, in this, this mythological, mythological devil figure is something like a, like a comic book version of Jesus's own deepest voice. In this story, I think, the devil represents something kind of like Jesus' shadow side. Jesus is tempted to give in to his own deepest desires, to be effective, to be relevant, to meet people where they are, to be powerful and spectacular, and start a movement that will change the world. That's a lot more than an ego trip. Jesus' adventure in this 40-day vision quest only serves to make his own internal voice that much more powerful. This is who you are. This is who you can be. This is what happens, Jesus, if you, if you maximize your strengths. This is what life looks like when you cut through the crap and actualize your best self. This is a voice that offers a shortcut to ultimate fulfillment. Jesus catches a glimpse of the vision that, for which he is questing. It's, the, it's this powerful, charismatic healer who has the ability to change the world. And all you need to do, the voice of the tempter says, all you need to do is to get over your fears and embrace your strengths. You can do this, Jesus. You've got this. And he says no. He says no because there's something in him deeper than his own deepest voice that tells him that the spiritual life is not actually a project of self-actualization. Lent is not a time for getting in touch with your best self or breaking the self-destructive patterns so that you can live your best life now. This is not a story about self-control. It's a story about trust. Jesus says no because he's resisting, not because he's resisting the temptation to sin, but because after 40 days without food, Jesus is so weak and he's so desperate that the only thing he knows for sure is that God loves him and that God's love is the only thing that he has going for him. Jesus takes refuge in God alone over and against his strengths because he has nothing left. I mean, it's a a desperate faith that this first observance of Lent reduces Jesus to. He renounces all the stuff that makes him him, 
all the stuff that makes him unique. And in renouncing control over his very life, I think Jesus discovers, maybe for the first time, what it means to trust God. I mean, this desert experience for Jesus, I think, is the experience that teaches him how to walk to the foot of the cross and give up his life when that invitation comes his way. This is a story about being stripped of everything you think you know so that the only thing you have to rely on is God. This is a story about what it looks like to trust. St. Paul wrote to the people in Rome, the word of God is very near to you. He said, the word, the the presence, the miracle, the word of God is on your lips and it is in your heart. And then Paul goes on to say a kind of a weird thing, a thing that has confused a lot of people over the years. Paul says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That sounds a little bit like bargaining with God, right? Believe this set of doctrines, say these creeds, say these words, and God will reward you, God will save you, God will give you power and make you happy. But belief, the English word that we use to capture this thing that Paul is talking about, right? That is a word that has nothing to do with doctrine. It's a word with with actually very little place in this tradition because the way that we think about what it means to believe something is totally foreign to the Bible's way of imagining human beings and imagining the world. Right? It's, it's foreign to the, the creeds, the great statement of belief that we say every week. It's foreign to the, the, the great tradition of Christianity, which is originally something like the great anti-belief religion. Being a Christian has nothing to do with what I think about God. It has nothing to do with my opinion of the Bible. It has very little to do with my understanding of who Jesus is or was. Being a Christian is almost never about what I think. As Paul suggests, it's about where I place my heart. Being a Christian is about how well and how deeply I know how to trust. The word is very near to me, but it is not in my head. It's on my lips, and it's in my heart. So being a Christian is really a question of where I choose to put my trust. And that's a question that has nothing to do with cognition and everything to do with my choices, right? It's about how I use my power. It's about how I allocate my resources. It's about how I deal with my privilege, how I spend my time. That's the stuff that makes me a Christian, not whether I go to church on a Sunday morning or remember to say my prayers at night. And I gotta tell you, after, after a couple decades now of treating the season of Lent as this kind of fun 40-day experiment in spiritual novelty, Right? Figuring out something relatively easy to give up when you're going to give up cinnamon rolls. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Fasting from stuff like alcohol or chocolate. Taking on stuff. One year I decided I was going to read all of Dante in Lent. That lasted me about a week. Um, <laughs> but it was a fun little fantasy to play. I'm going to be the kind of person who reads Dante in Lent. Like, gold star for me. Um, and, you know, it doesn't last. Right? That stuff does not last. Lent can be an, an exercise in organized failure. I think that's actually not a bad way of using it. Um, but after, after two decades of faking my way through acute cutesy Lent, I'm getting a little bit bored with the self-improvement model, the resist temptation model, the give up something so you can get it back again model. I'm tired of an easy Lent that doesn't actually really ask me to change very much. I kind of want something different. I want something that's going to make a, a real difference in how I live my life from day to day, how I relate to my faith 
And I think the deeper invitation of Lent is this invitation to, I mean, kind of dig back down to the basics and rediscover like what it looks like on a practical day-to-day basis to call myself a Christian. I mean, that's kind of a scary word in these days, right? What does that mean? That's the invitation I want to offer to you over these next 40 days. A friend of mine posted on Twitter a few days ago, this year I'm giving up Lent for Lent. And, uh, and I giggled a little bit when I saw that. But that's, that's actually an idea that's kind of stuck with me. Because my attempt to take on Lent, uh, to exercise greater control over my life, mostly those attempts have backfired. And I don't know about you, I'm kind of tired of the anxiety of trying so desperately to stay on top of everything, to stay on top of my emails and my phone messages. I'm tired of policing myself every day, trying to make sure that I'm living up to the best version of my fantasy self. I'm trying so, tired of trying so hard to be the good little boy I think I need to be. I don't need 40 days of more guilt. I need 40 days of figuring out what trust looks like. Maybe that means I give up for Lent. I want to stop trying to be somebody that I'm not, somebody holy, somebody perfect, somebody good, and start actually being the person who I really am. And I suspect that that looks a little bit more like a beloved child of God who messes up royally and nevertheless is incredibly loved and can trust God to do what God says God's going to do. I mean, what would it look like if I felt in my body what a radical trust would look like? That's what I want to figure out for Lent. I want to figure out what that looks like to live my life as if I really believe, not in my head, but in my heart, that God is in control of my life and this whole crazy world. What happens if I give up trying so hard and start trusting more deeply. What does that mean for my relationships? What does that mean for my bank account, my social obligations, my professional choices? How does that impact my goals and plans and hopes and dreams? I mean, what does it mean to be a Christian anyway in this day and age with so much toxic messaging around that? What am I doing to live my life right now, not the, not the idealized aspirational spiritual life, but my real, actual, messy Christian life? That's the question I'm asking this Lent. And this much I know. I don't think that being a Christian looks like somebody who is assiduously avoiding all temptation. I suspect that being a Christian actually looks a little bit more like a person who is completely and utterly dependent on God. I am not that person, but I am intrigued by what it would look like to start acting a little bit more like that person. I would like to be a little bit more that kind of a person, which means I would actually like to be a little bit more like Jesus.